0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar.
1: Name a detail so bizarre a scroll could never fabricate it. A toaster's cut diagonally, I can't eat it. You didn't need that, did you? No. No, I didn't. But I enjoyed it.
0: Hearing Samuel L. Jackson talk about food he won't eat is one of cinema's great pleasures. Of course you enjoyed it, Brie Larson. I think hearing Samuel L. Jackson talk
1: about anything is one of cinema's great pleasures. Larson there with Jackson in Captain Marvel, which comes to theaters this weekend. We've got a review on this week's show. I think it's Marvel,
0: Adam, but we'll get to that. <laughs> Fair enough. Plus, we'll have film spotting madness, best of the 2000s, first round results, and second round matchups. It's all ahead. Hey, how do you like your toast, Adam? On film spotting.
1: Welcome to Film Spotting. We are fully in the throes of Film Spotting Madness, Josh. If you listen closely, you can hear the screams of agony off in the (laughs) distance. More on that to come. It is our fifth annual March Madness-style tourney, which kicked off last week with 64 beloved films from the 2000s. After a week of voting, we are down to 32 we'll get to those results along with your round two matchups there were a couple of nail biters in that first round and at least one big surprise involving the fate of a pixar film
0: i i don't know yet and i don't want to hear it i don't want to hear which one went down i'm hoping it's only one actually we'll see all right but first 11 years into its cinematic universe marvel gives us a film headlined by a woman superhero is there anything else about the movie that's fresh
1: So you're not from around here. It's hard to explain. I keep having these memories. I see flashes. I think I had a life here. But I can't tell if it's real.
0: We have no idea what threats are out there. Can't do this alone. We need you.
1: I'm not what you think I am. We're here for a still processing review of Captain Marvel. We just walked out of our screening of the film, which stars Brie Larson, of course, as. Carol Danvers, a.k.a. Captain Marvel. Samuel L. Jackson appears as Nick Fury. I'm sure we'll discuss this aspect of the film. Appears in the movie way more than I expected him to. We both went into this movie completely blank. And I think I might, in a shorthand way, describe this best as the Born identity meets the right stuff. We have this element of amnesia. Carol Danvers doesn't really know her true identity. Spends most of the film trying to discover that, in addition to discovering, I suppose, her true power, and then we get that flight and space aspect to it. In fact, it I was going to say name drops the right stuff at one point going after my own heart, but actually we see the box for the movie, a VHS box of the film, because
0: it's set in the mid-90s. I knew this movie had a shot with you when
1: when that popped up. Everything was great after I saw that shot. I do want to say thank you to our friend Tasha Robinson right before... I arrived at our screening, I saw a tweet from her. She linked to an article from one of the reviewers over at her outlet, The Verge. Shayna O'Neill is the writer. And of course, I didn't want to read too much about the film, but the headline caught my eye and the initial setup of the burden that has been placed on this film, I felt was something we could wrestle with a little bit here. O'Neill writes that Of course, this movie is notable because it's the first female-led Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. It's taken a decade. It's taken 20 movies, but we finally got it. We needed Wonder Woman to pave the way for it, but it's here. And as O'Neill puts it, the movie faced the, quote, triple challenge of living up to past MCU films, proving a female-led movie can make the company money, and squaring off against one of DC's biggest hits. Add on to that, the films that have come immediately before this one in the MCU. The chances Taika Waititi took with Thor Ragnarok, what we saw in Black Panther from Ryan Coogler and all of that leading up to Infinity War, the movie that Tasha referenced at our interview rap party, that moment, that Thanos moment, being kind of the pop culture moment of the year. After all of that, O'Neill writes, Captain Marvel is in the unenviable position of having to introduce a new character to the MCU, lay out her origin story, Tie her in with the current MCU timeline, create backstories for several previously established characters, and set up even more significant elements for Avengers Endgame. So, Anna Fleck, Ryan Bowden, as the filmmakers, not only taking on a challenge where they've never made this kind of film before, their previous efforts, including Half Nelson and Sugar, they now have all that weight on their shoulders. Did they manage to pull it off?
0: Oh man, you're making me sweat here. <laughs> I feel like I'm under pressure. That yeah. was a lot. I didn't think about how much this movie was bearing and maybe to tick off a few of those things. Uh, how does Captain Marvel match up with previous MCU installments uh coming out of it? It's one of my favorite. Really? So I think it does just fine that way. Uh, what's it going to do box office wise? I don't care. We'll see. You know, I mean it that that's luxury you and I have where it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a feeling it'll do pretty well because I think it does all the things that the Marvel films that have managed to score with audiences have done. And, you know, stacking it up against DC's Wonder Woman, there's just no point in doing that. We, we have six bajillion male-led superhero movies that, yeah, we rank and so forth, but we don't pit them against each other for their maleness. So there's no point in doing That here. I mean, how do you go about meeting all of those challenges? Maybe this simplifies it, but maybe this is what I say just make a good film. Mm -hmm. Just put all that aside, sit down, make something that's entertaining, bring some good ideas to it, offer some fun performances. And don't get too overwhelmed to speak to one of the other things that was mentioned in that Verge article. Don't get too overwhelmed by the larger MCU. Uh, And I think that's what they've managed to do here with Captain Marvel. Um, Now, thinking about it in that context, one thing that came to mind for me as I'm sitting in this movie is I don't know how many MCU films we've reviewed, but a fair amount. I don't think Kevin Feige's name has ever come up in any of our reviews, maybe in passing reference.
1: Maybe a failure on our part, uh, but that's true.
0: Well, I... I'm bringing him up here because this is another example, and obviously, you know, he's the main producer on all these films, and obviously there are many other producers and casting directors uh, and people underneath him who are intricately involved, but he's been the guiding force, and this is yet another example of matching filmmakers and actors with the material that are just Perfect. And Mm -hmm. he's been doing this since the beginning. I won't run through them all, but let's just recall the first one, Robert Downey Jr. and Jon Favreau for Iron Man. Neither of them obvious choices, right? In retrospect, perfect choices. So what's he done here as a producer? Once again, found the right script people to write that script, and then direct it in this case as well, and found the perfect star. And I mentioned the script first because I think of Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck as, you know, they've always been, the two things are so intertwined, the script writing and the directing, as you mentioned, from Half Nelson or Sugar, or one I really liked a lot. It's kind of a funny story. Yeah, me too. Haven't seen Mississippi Grind myself. I should note they have a third screenwriter here on Captain Marvel, Geneva Robertson Dwarit unfamiliar with Mm -hmm. her but apparently wrote last year's tomb raider which i didn't see but heard good things about all right so their strength especially bowden and fleck is as screenwriters and that is what as you hinted at when you talked about the plot here that's what this marvel movie needs this is really a slyly Mm -hmm. structured origin story in which the hero discovers her origin alongside us and that's crafted in a very compelling way here it's a bit of a mystery it just freshens up this whole idea of figuring out what is the origin of a superhero we're not familiar with doing it through um, this sense of memory recovery the born element as Mm -hmm. you're talking about it's you know it really works here Uh, now i'll throw it back to you and we can get back and talk in a little bit about the star element and how Larson plays into that. But again, th- this is just more evidence of of Feige's hand or the people he has working under him doing that old Hollywood job of matching the talent with the material.
1: Hmm. I think where I really noticed it too is in the sequence that takes place in Louisiana. We won't get into too many details, but it involves Carol Danvers discovering some of her past and meeting up with an old friend who used to be her best friend. And there are a couple moments there outside on this property with the sun just going down. And I think a couple characters even in dialogue and then maybe embracing and something about that magic hour shot. And I think even the handheld camera in that moment, which I didn't otherwise really detect too much in this film, it felt like something straight out of sugar. Yeah. So that's a moment where maybe the directorial hand definitely comes through. In addition to the script writing, I think you put it really nicely when you said that they don't get too overwhelmed by anything i think the simplicity of the story ultimately is a real strength of this film when you sit back and actually reflect on the number of characters we meet and kind of the scale of it it might seem bigger than that but it's a pretty streamlined film at its core it really is this story of carol discovering who she really is of course there's a lot more at stake and the stakes are what make this film i think so much fun to watch there is the aspect of saving the galaxy to an extent, but it's really more about some of the individuals involved. And I think the character revelations here in this film are really effective. So I think we are pretty much in complete agreement on this. And I I did. I just had way more fun with this movie than I ever imagined I would have. We were talking about it on our way in. I had pretty low expectations, and maybe that's a good thing, just based on what I had seen in some of those clips that were on Twitter and other social media. But I do want to ask you a little bit about how they use Larson in this movie because I think about a movie like Wonder Woman and you know what? Maybe it's not fair to just focus on that film. Let's talk about any film in the MCU that involves a lead character. Not an Avengers movie, but it's a Captain America movie or it's a Thor movie. So take any of those films or take Wonder Woman. All of them have some great supporting performances and some scene-stealing moments in them, but there's never any doubt that whoever that title character is the movie belongs to them. And I do have to say, watching this film, I thought it was curious that Captain Marvel gets upstaged a lot by not only Samuel L. Jackson, Hmm. but also Ben Mendelsohn. And... Lashana Lynch, who is the friend that she meets up with in those Louisiana scenes. And this is where you're supposed to jump in, Josh, and also point out that a cat steals a few moments as well. And I just don't know. Well, you may disagree with me, but I was going to say, what do we attribute that to? Do you just chalk that up to Samuel L. Jackson and Ben Mendelsohn being two of the most fantastically charismatic actors on screen these days who make everything they're in more fun? coupled with the fact that Larson's character by design is mostly
0: a blank slate? or oh, no. Or is it something else? No, I, I didn't have that experience at all. I will say going in, I had reservation about Larson because I thought – based on her previous work and stuff like Room or Short Term 12, where she's excellent. But I thought, is she going to be too earnest for this? Is she going to have a, a quality of seriousness that isn't, uh, you know, the MCU, as dark as some of those films get, there's also, there are always moments of lightness to them as well. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, just hadn't seen that. Sure. And maybe I, I haven't seen everything Larson does. Maybe I just hadn't seen that yet. But for me, this is another example of Feige and the casting people, seeing something else in her, or knowing she could do something else. I think she absolutely grabs this movie hmm. and takes control of it. Everything you said about those supporting players is dead on, though. I mean, Samuel Jackson is fantastic. It's great lines, but I also feel like he's purposefully deferential and allows her to have her moments as well. And it's a buddy It's comedy. never about him or his acting. It's never about him. Definitely, and, that's yeah, the case. And that's, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's not about his acting either, mm-hmm. and Samuel Jackson has done that. In other films. So it's interesting that he is a bit deferential here when it matters. Mendelssohn is crucial Mm -hmm. because just when you think – and we have to dance around this a little bit – the parts of the film that he's involved in are going to be the most boring parts of this movie. His performance turns them on a dime and they become – very funny, quite entertaining, and almost a bit of um, you know self-deconstruction, too, when you think about the sort of characters Mendelssohn is usually known for. Yeah. The cat's great, too, but the cat's nothing compared to Captain Marvel here. She absolutely <laughs> grabs a hold of this film, and here's how I would describe her. I don't think she's a blank slate at all. I think it's – okay, you mentioned Lashana Lynch mm-hmm. as her friend. At one point, her friend describes her as smart, funny, and a huge pain in the ass – And that's how Larson plays her. She could care less if she's likable in this movie. She's driven. She's competitive. She's stubborn, but not humorless. There are moments where she shows in the scenes with Jackson, but also Mm -hmm. little touches like when she's fighting an alien at one point and it lets out this like hokey movie alien snarl And she growls. I love it. And she kind of snarls back, right? Mm -hmm. There's some personality there. And when she does hit Earth in the 1990s, I love how she just takes charge. She has no regard for the customs, no regard for, you know, the clothing styles, Mm -hmm. no no regard for property even. She's just blasting things away. And she's this sort of driven character where you you might not always like her every day, Mm -hmm. um, but you have to admire her. You have to admire that drive. And... We'll get to one of my favorite scenes I want to talk about is the one where I think she does grab this movie and say, maybe if someone's feeling like you were like, oh, she's kind of getting upstaged here. There's a sequence near the end where it's like, oh, that's right. This is this is Captain Mm. Marvel.
1: Yeah, I look forward
0: to hearing more about that. I think the sense of humor and Larson's sense
1: of humor is ultimately a strength of the film, though. I got very nervous when she does crash land in the mid nineties and we get within about a ten minute span thirty seven really obvious nineties jokes. Yeah. Like the first first thirteen to fourteen are funny and then, you know, the the other twenty maybe I didn't need music cues. Did those work for you or did those get a little They did, only because I liked the choices. Okay. Like, I did like the musical choices. There is a lot, though. There there is. So that was something where I felt like, oh, if they keep this up, or if they try to keep this up for most of this running time, this is definitely going to wear on me, but they don't. I think the only thing I'll go back to with Larson, and again, we just came from it, so I'm still trying to think this through, is I just keep wondering whether or not we needed to see a scene or another scene on the planet that she thinks is her home planet, the planet that... We opened the film on Hala, I think, and she's Cree. Is her what? Not her nationality, but it is it is what species she is. I sure. suppose. Yeah, is Cree we'll go with that. And I just felt as if we needed another scene that took her out of that kind of. Purely sparring with Jude Law, Mm. moving the plot forward in so much as it sets up her central dilemma. And then the movie is going to take it from there, where we really see how she does or doesn't fit within that environment. Because we know more than her, even just walking into the film, we know something she doesn't, which is she's not really or at least she probably is that there has to be some human in her. There's way more to it. And we never get that scene. We only get set up leading up to that mission. So there was some interaction there that just didn't really allow me in, I suppose, with her character. And then even when she gets to Earth, you are exactly right. I think most of that stuff works, but we never really get that sense of how she maybe fit into that environment as well. She's mostly just a misfit there. There was something for me in those scenes, Josh, I guess there was almost... Robotic about the way Larson plays him that then alternates with her being incredibly witty. And we didn't get as much of that kind of tortured soul that I think the movie sets her up to be in a lot of different points. So this is a movie that's about this character discovering and embracing her humanity. And somehow I felt I felt the a distance there. I never really felt Like she was human.
0: You know where that happens for me, though? It's another interesting script decision and then visually played out really well is it happens in the exploration of her memories. Um, So she's captured Mm -hmm. early on and is her mind is essentially probed. And the people who have captured her are trying to find some information by looking into her past and her memories. And these are memories she doesn't even really know what to make of. Mm -hmm. She writes them off at the very beginning as dreams. I think that's where we get a lot of that characterization of her. And it's also a motif that's interesting return to uh, a couple of times where her memories. The one I really liked is that instance I'm just talking about is very high tech. It's like space mind reading or something. Then in that Louisiana sequence you mentioned, um, her best friend's daughter brings out a box of old photographs Mm -hmm. and they start going through those. And that's like. A lo-fi counterpoint to having her mind probed yes. earlier. Here's where we're seeing who she was yeah. in handheld photos. Sure, and I just Both like clever ways to
1: move the story forward, but also give us backstory and yeah, give us character and, and answer yeah. some
0: of those some of those questions. I think maybe that for me, that you were looking for. That's where I got them yeah. in some of those sequences. Sure.
1: Now, what about the action scenes, Josh? Because this is something that I know we constantly harp on. I think maybe a lot of people even. Major fans of this universe do. And here, I would say this is not maybe where Fleck and Bowden were at their best. These are action sequences, and there are some that are very good, don't get me wrong. But like so many films in the MCU, they end with these climactic showdowns that seem to go on forever, where there's a lot of chaos. And I do feel like a broken record here because we just do it all the time. I'm wondering if any MCU movie, and you've recently rewatched all of them? Yep. Have you rewatched all of them? So have any of them gotten this right? I mean, I know Michael Phillips was on the show recently. We were talking about Black Panther, and that's one that sort of has a more quiet intimate showdown of course right. between Michael B. Jordan's villain and our hero played by Chadwick Bozeman but then it also of course is within this context of this huge spectacle with bodies everywhere so that's one that almost gets it right but not quite
0: for me do any of them and yeah did the, this for you the one that you know stands out to me always that does this right and why it's among my very favorite MCU films is Captain America Civil War because mm. you do have Iron Man and Captain America just going at it um with Bucky there as well, so it's like a three-person, yeah. very rooted in their interpersonal dynamics mm-hmm. fight. I think that is where it's done best. I, you know, Captain Marvel probably splits the difference here. Where you are right, there is a space battle, yeah, um, that we probably don't need. I think also probably my least favorite parts of this film are the beginning. There's almost a military operation sequence at the very first third of the film yeah. that is it's not rainy or darker at night like my usual complaint but it's very dusty <laughs> it's ve-
1: very there's a, dusty there's a
0: lot of dirt getting in the way well they'll and, make up for the darkness later <laughs> I yeah. mean
1: uh, every scene at the end almost is very dim
0: so that's not so great and then there is also in the climax where Captain Marvel is taking on about four or five adversaries and they all her basic power is that I can't she can, wait till you tell me <laughs> I, I believe I heard the phrase photon blast
1: okay does that sound familiar to you well she can do that with her hands hands. yes this is
0: this like huge amount of energy comes out of her hands we won't explain why because that was kind of a cool reveal sure but all right i'm going down a rabbit hole here already essentially in this showdown she's using this power she has these photon blasts coming out of her hand and fighting these people who are also they don't have that but they have these like light up weapons that gets a little chaotic Mm -hmm. as does the space battle but Let me say as a counter. Okay. And this is where, like, the movie could have just ended here, really. And I would have been satisfied. I don't know. They do feel the need. uh, Whoever, maybe we blame Feige for this. They do feel the need to have these enormous battles in most of these films. But when she comes into her own powers, and this is also the sequence where she claims this movie and also claims her space in the MCU. Yes. And to me... Makes the argument why the last Avengers film ended hinting at her. Mm-hmm. You know, what character could live up to that billing? Well, this scene made me believe it. And it's where she's been subdued again in the climax. Mm-hmm. She's being held down. And there's another instance of her mind being probed. Yes. And essentially, there's a couple of visual layers happening at once here. And I, I give Bowden and Fleck credit for their the visual element they bring to this because at once we're seeing this battle happening inside her head where there's a confrontation. Then we also will cut back to the shots of her being subdued, yet she's growing into her power. She hasn't understood, as you said, her mm-hmm. power in this whole film, but is finally coming around to understand that while she's being restrained. And then it comes together in this fantastic final frame that's very comic booky. What I loved about it, it was almost as if there were parallel frames going on here. We would cut back and forth to these different visual styles, and then they kind of submerged as they might at the end of a comic book page. Um, and that's all visual. That is, I think, action as well. And It also does a lot of character work. For me, it builds back into – there's a running through line and maybe here's where we'll get to the feminism question um, that she's constantly told she's too emotional. Yes, Which is interesting that you described her as robotic and and maybe that's part of a response to that. Um, But in this moment, it is exactly her emotions. It's her stubbornness and it's her anger that allow her to draw on that power and really – grasp its full potential Hmm. so there's character work being done there it's visually amazing to me and i could have been happy if the movie had just ended right there
1: okay so this is going to be tough because obviously we don't want to get into spoilers and we might just have to wait until we're off air to truly dive into the moment you're talking about but i had a similar moment that honestly is one of my favorite visual moments in the entire MCU. And I hope it's the one you're describing, but I'm not sure that it is because there is after this scene Mm -hmm. a whole lot more action. There is. Okay, so it sounds like maybe we're on to the same thing, but you're right. This whole notion they set up, I do think is really effective, that her weakness, which obviously is also her strength, is her emotion. And we do see in those flashbacks, which I think are, are mostly effective, that she's always been told to go slower. She's always been told to, to sort of play it safe mm-hmm. or to not play at all as a girl. She's never really been given an opportunity to test herself or test others. That's the other thing, right? Just, just like stay in your lane, yes. do the bare minimum, what society sort of expects from you and don't challenge anything more than that. And there is this moment of empowerment, undeniably female empowerment that is incredibly powerful visually and like I said, the fact that they manage to within just a few frames and a few visual choices convey that. That's a real credit to Bowden and Fleck, that they pull off a moment that good, that compelling, without needing any dialogue but just a few
0: edits and now that i think about it memory comes into play there as well absolutely so yeah we are thinking of the same moment it's it's great um now describing it that way maybe it sounds if you haven't seen the film yet like it's it's really pushing this notion of feminism but i think it wears it pretty lightly throughout the film. It's very similar to Wonder Woman in that way. The touches are there. It's definitely on the movie's mind, um, but it's not something it's going to, you know, shove out there and lead with necessarily. Mm -hmm. And I think that's much more effective. That way, when it does touch on it, it really works. And there are so many little bits of Emasculation of men in this that are just passing glances. I think of one of them is one of those early '90s jokes. Uh, I'll just say it involves a true lies poster. Uh, there's a yeah. visual gag there mm-hmm. that is, you know, there is that works right into this theme without sitting on it to heavily mm-hmm. and of course we we touched on the thing about emotions you know is uh, it, it's just incorporating the critique like oh, don't be so emotional that women are frequently told and turning that upside down and, and making an integral part of her character that is captain marvel we would love to hear
1: your thoughts if you agree or disagree with our takes you can email us feedback at
0: filmspotting.net with a snap of our fingers well with the click of thousands of listeners votes 32 movies have already disintegrated in film spotting madness (laughs) we'll have all the results from round one of our bracket style tournament when we come back stay with us
1: the whole Apollo program was designed to get two
0: Americans to the lunar surface and back again to earth safely the enormity of this event is something that only history will be able to judge that's from the trailer for the new IMAX documentary Apollo 11 it's about NASA's first mission to the moon yes also the subject of last year's first man the Damien Chazelle film some of the footage in this doc has never been seen before i haven't seen it adam You have. You made time for Apollo 11. What'd you think?
1: Yeah, how about that? I just saw it yesterday. So as we sit here back-to-back movies about pilots and space travel, and I adored This film, Josh, took all the kids to see this with me on a Sunday. Fortunate to have an AMC, kind of one of those junior IMAX theaters that's fairly nearby, the closest multiplex to us. And I just saw so many positive comments about this movie on Twitter. Otherwise, I have to confess, it was pretty much off my radar. We needed something fun to do on Sunday, so I brought everyone to the movie. A movie shot 50 years ago and... This means nothing right now, but my favorite film of 2019 so far. The footage is stunning, and that's how it looks, the quality of the cinematography, but also where the cameras are and what the filmmakers were able to pull from. The director here is Todd Douglas Miller, and there are hundreds of examples I could point to. But there's one shot of one of the dockings that happens In space, You know, part of this rocket and the capsule that they're in has to come off and actually do a little turn in space and then redock with the piece that it just came off of. And you see the whole thing play out from a camera that's clearly mounted on the receiving ship. So when the contact and then the seal are made, we actually linger for a few extra seconds and you see the bolts shimmy. A little Hmm. bit afterwards and whether it was totally deliberate or not that choice to kind of linger there for the viewer all I could think of was the tenuousness of it all despite the audacity and the incredible achievement that we're witnessing it's still dependent on machines with parts and pieces that are made by men and maneuvered by men who could all fail. And you mentioned First Man. It's such a perfect companion and compliment to First Man. I remember when we talked about that film, I noted that I really appreciated how Chazelle portrayed Armstrong in such an ambivalent way, that he wasn't this sort of stereotypical, macho American hero. I said that I needed real heroes these days, imperfect people of action. And First Man definitely got, it had action, but it also really focused in on the imperfect person there. And this film, Apollo 11, is the action. There's no narration. There are no interviews. There's no contextualizing, no trying to place it within this larger scheme of of human accomplishment it doesn't need it it's just the actions and not just the actions of Armstrong of course but Buzz Aldrin and also Michael Collins and the thousands of others who had to do their jobs no matter how seemingly insignificant in order to accomplish something of this magnitude those bolts those were all put on by a person with a particular skill probably very good at what they do but nevertheless just a human being and that perspective what a group of individuals can do when they come together for a collective good plus the coming together of citizens around the world unified in their support and in their cheering this on that shapes everything we see in the movie and i mentioned that i was urged to see this film because of the glowing comments on social media i kept seeing the word patriotic tossed around and I get it, and I don't think it's a dirty word here at all, but I also feel like there has to be a better word for the pride one feels watching humanity at its finest that doesn't need to include jingoism. For me, it's just one of the most hopeful movies I've ever seen and definitely encourage you to see Apollo 11 if you happen to be fortunate enough to have it playing at a theater near you.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. This sounds like with all this talk back and forth about what format should we watch this movie and what's the appropriate one? This seems like it's pretty cut and dry. You got to see this. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. On an IMAX. If you yeah, can.
1: that's really the only option at this point. And I'm not sure how it will translate to the home viewing experience, but would definitely encourage people when the movie does eventually hit those platforms. I did just spend the 93 minute running time though in awe of everything i was witnessing but also the time capsule that it is and i think i read somewhere that one of the things that led to this movie being made not only discovering all this footage but someone working on another project had synced up a bunch of footage from nasa control with the actual audio Mm. of these missions and there is something that kind of takes your breath away I can't really explain it any other way than that. When you're watching these moments and we get split screens and we hear the communication going back and forth between NASA and the astronauts in space, and then it will cut to this shot and we're actually, we're watching the guy. We're not watching an actor. We're watching the guy in that moment actually say that little line that otherwise maybe would just kind of be a throwaway on the soundtrack. Instead, we're seeing this. This moment, this fossil kind of being dug up right in front of our eyes and just the footage to Josh of all of the people amassing down at Cape Canaveral and the different faces we see the home movie quality to it mixed with the fact that it was shot in 70 millimeter and shot by people who clearly knew exactly what they were doing. It just. Makes it a special experience. Would love to hear from others who have had an opportunity to see it. You can email us, feedback at
0: filmspotting.net. Looking ahead to next week on the show, we will continue with The Madness. We'll have round two results and then the Sweet 16 matchups. We'll dig into all of that. Plus, we teased it last week but have ended up pushing it back one week. It's the third film in our John Cassavetes marathon, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. I have watched the 76 version already. So I guess Adam, we've so, decided. Well, you you know, yeah. you could watch the 78, right? That was the other one that was yes. up for debate. Mm-hmm. Um maybe I'll get to the 78 too. Who mm. knows? And then we can really do really dig into that side by side. And comparison. then read the book too, Josh. Exactly. <laughs> I've got some time here. We're going to finish the marathon the following week then with 1977's opening night. As we've mentioned all of these titles are available to rent on various platforms or you can find them through your local library. If you want to check out the latest that's happening with the marathons, it's at filmspotting.net slash marathons.
1: I did want to get to a quick note, as it is our anniversary here on Film Spotting. Not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. Not going to do any kind of big 14-year anniversary celebration. I don't even know what 14 years is, Josh. Is it the headphone anniversary? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's what I got you. That's what I brought. But I we been are, here all 14 years. But we are, as we sit here taping, one day away from what would actually be 14 years to the day that Sam and I not only sat down and recorded our first episode of Film Spotting, but posted our first episode of film spotting because the shows oh they were so much simpler then you, and you they were so much shorter and
0: posted we recorded within an hour
1: basically there was no other production we pretty much i threw it on a timeline maybe made two or three edits and boom it was out to the world <laughs> and that was film spotting and i know we've brought this up on the show before past anniversaries but i went back just to verify the date and it was march 6th 2005, and I was reading the description for the show, and it does say in there, there's a note, this got a little more long-winded than we expected it to. (laughs) Oh my goodness. We don't expect future shows to be this long, but we would love to hear any feedback about the length. And the beauty is, the show is like 40 minutes. (laughs) That's
0: that's where the curse began. But
1: you have to understand, Sam and I, when we sat down across from each other, we expected the whole show to be like 17 minutes. (laughs) And then... We just kept talking, so that that could Shocking. be that could be the title Shocking. of the biography someday. Yeah, the autobiography. We just kept talking, a history of film spotting. But because we are having this anniversary moment, we thought it'd be fun to share this tweet from our dear friend Melissa Tamiga. She's one April Day. On Twitter and on Letterboxd, where you should absolutely be following her. She just tweeted at us, not even knowing this anniversary was a thing. I finally got my 17-year-old to listen to Film Spotting. She is now hooked and declares, I've never had anyone describe exactly how I feel about a movie before. Yours sincerely, Melissa Wright's Chopped Liver. I did feel bad for Melissa about the Chopped Liver part. (laughs) Kind of know how she feels there. Yeah, we're happy to be here for all of our listeners, and hopefully it will continue for 14 or so more years years to come. Now, that does mean that our next anniversary will be our 15th. And I guess that sounds like a good number to devote a little bit more attention to that milestone. Certainly not many podcasts can claim to be around as long as we have. And I guess it makes sense to go ahead and throw out right now, just let people think about it. They can percolate. Obviously, you've got an entire year to do so. But if we were going to do some kind of year-long acknowledgement of our 15-year anniversary. What type of recurring segment or theme or idea might be fun for you, the listener? We'd love to hear those ideas. I have an idea, and we'll see what you and Sam think, but I'm sure our listeners will come up with many other good ones, as they have been integral to so many segments in different parts of the show over the years.
0: Is your idea to celebrate at the Cannes Film Festival? You know what? That's a great idea. We have talked
1: about it, and we might just have to make that happen. Now, I don't know how much fun that will be for the listener. Oh, that I, might, I wasn't thinking about that. That might just be our fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of fun for our listeners, at least our local Chicago area listeners, we do love to give away free stuff, especially free movie passes. And right now at filmspotting.net, we've got admit two passes to an advanced screening of the Mustang. This is the feature directing debut of actress... Laura de clermont Tonner. She is in The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, that Julian Schnabel film, and it's about a convict who gets to participate in a rehabilitation therapy program that involves the training of wild mustang. So, The Year of the Horse Continues. continues. Josh, this is a movie that opens on March 22nd. The screening is right here in Chicago on
0: Thursday, March 14th. So, you can enter to get passes for that or The Hummingbird Project. Yeah, we have run of engagement passes to Kim Gwen's The Hummingbird Project. This will start on March 25. Jesse Eisenberg and Alexander Skarsgård star in this along with Salma Hayek. The plot here, a pair of high-frequency traders go up against their old boss in an effort to make millions in a fiber-optic cable deal. If Gwen's name sounds familiar, that's because he's the director of 2012's War Witch. And wait... There's more. We also have a Greta giveaway going on. This is the new film starring Isabel Huppert and Chloe Grace Moretz.
1: Yeah, this is a movie that just opened last weekend directed by Neil Jordan. This giveaway was on our website, filmspotting.net slash events. I haven't seen the film yet, Josh, so I can't speak to these prizes, obviously inspired by the film. We've got a handbag. We've got a pack of gum. How about that? And maybe the big prize here, a poster signed by Moretz, Hooper, and director Neil Jordan. Not bad for a prize pack there, especially if you have seen and enjoyed this movie, and we got a lot of entries, and it seems like there is a fair amount of love out there for this thriller. We are going to announce the winner now. That winner is listener Grace Wire. Congratulations, Grace. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with that prize pack and, again, more information about all of our giveaways can be found at filmspotting.net slash events.
0: Okay, there's a way out. There's got to be a way out. Look, here's something. Yes. I wonder what
1: that means. It's funny. It's spelled just like the word escape. Let's go. Ah! He is That's a good pull there by producer Sam because it was a harrowing week for Finding Nemo. It's round one Film Spotting Madness contest against Brokeback Mountain came down to a photo finish. Over 2,500 votes in this poll and most of our contests. Nemo v. Brokeback, Josh, decided by just nine. That's craziness. I know, it really is. Another first-round match was decided by even fewer votes, and there was one legit upset that, yes, Josh, involved <sighs> another Pixar film.
0: Well, I, you know, I believe I voted against Nemo myself. Yeah, I was going to say, you so didn't help. I can't. I can't blame anyone. You were the executioner (laughs) for most of these films. But I'm regretting that
1: already. Yeah. All 32 first-round results here in just a second. But first, a little bit of madness background. This is our March Madness-style single elimination tournament. Listener votes determine who advances every week We share another round this year. It's the best films of the 2000s. We started with 64, actually something like 77. If you consider all the play-in matches this week, we are down to 32, of course. We'll have a Sweet 16, Elite 8, Final 4, and then get to that championship matchup. We didn't have time on our last show to really get into this, and I'm not going to waste... Everyone's time here, or try to prolong the suspense by really getting into the selection process. We'll just say we joke about it a lot. For you, Josh, it was very quick and easy. Yeah, you got to pretty much just, <laughs> just look at the final list. I just
0: don't get involved. <laughs> For myself and it's the Sam, best way
1: to save time. <laughs> we did start with some best of the decade lists. So the AV Club and a few other outlets had a top fifty or a top one hundred of the two thousands. But then when it came down to seating and filling out the bracket, we relied on. Not our tastes, but our thoughts and expectations, our gauge of film spotting listeners, and really just thinking about cinephiles in general and their regard for these films. We also did look at letterboxed because we felt like that was probably a good representation of our audience, and you could actually drill down and look at how popular films were by decade. So if there was a certain movie. That we were trying to weigh against another film in terms of where it should be seated. We could look at Letterboxd and see how many more people had rated that film and if they rated it significantly higher. Now, that may have backfired against us a little bit because we might have actually put too much of an emphasis on a couple of films because of their Letterboxd ratings that... We're going to see didn't really play out over the course of our voting, but for the most part, we emphasize the consensus best films of the decade over popular or even our favorites. There are some exceptions. We got in a few of our favorites, but we also left so, so many films that we love on the outside looking in.
0: Yeah. For those who might suspect that we were only putting our personal choices in this mix or that you and Sam were, well, consider this. If you look back at episode 300, you did a best of the 2000s list, you and Sam did. Yep. You had Born Identity, Roger Dodger, Hump Day, and Infernal Affairs. None of those made the bracket. Now, for Sam, some of his favorites that got shut out of the tournament, 24-Hour Party People, George Washington, and Science of Sleep. Now, I can't complain because, as you said, I wasn't involved in the selection process at all. But some of mine that I might have personally lobbied for that didn't make the cut. Well, if you look at my top tens from the 2000s, signs, the weatherman, Volver, Into the Wild, the promotion, and where the wild things are, all beloved by me, not in this tournament.
1: Yeah. And of those six I think you just mentioned, we definitely considered where the wild things are. That was on a top 10 list for me. And Sam is a huge fan. Volver strongly considered cut at the last second and Into the Wild, also given some consideration. We will also note that six of the 10 films that won the Best Picture Oscar in the 2000s also didn't make the cut. So no Gladiator, no Beautiful Mind, no Chicago, no Slumdog Millionaire, no Million Dollar Baby. You could, I suppose, add in that there was no Return of the King, though it made it as a play-in. Our listeners decided that Fellowship of the Ring was the best film to represent that trilogy in The final 64, an important note here, if you have been playing along, or if you're just now thinking about playing along as you listen to this, if you missed previous voting, that's fine. Join the fun now, but polls go live every Friday at midnight central time. So late Thursday night, basically, and they close the following Monday at noon. That means you only get three days to participate. You got to stay on top of this. You can follow us on Twitter for updates or subscribe to the film spotting newsletter. You always get the first shot at polls. That newsletter goes out Mondays at noon, and you can subscribe at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. But maybe the easiest thing to do, especially as we're about to jump into the first round results is to just go to filmspotting.net slash madness. Don't spotting.net
0: slash madness. All right, let's get to those first round results. We're going to do this in order from the biggest blowout to the closest margin of victory. So we start with Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind versus Gus Van Sant's Elephant. We heard from Adam H. here. Elephant is a raw, realistic, and honest portrayal of tragedy that is, unfortunately, even more applicable 16 years later. It doesn't seek to give an answer for the cause of school shootings. It simply portrays life, complicated, often humdrum, and completely anonymous to those outside of our circle, and those lives being interrupted in a horrific and tragic way. So, Adam, I agree with everything you said, but I voted the other way, and I think a lot of listeners did as well, because Eternal Sunshine won with 90% of the vote. Yeah, Adam H. Undoubtedly correct, but
1: Eternal Sunshine, the right choice here and the winning choice with 90% of the vote. Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation versus Claire Denise Beau Trevai, Adam Grossman, another Adam in Vancouver, wrote in, Last year, your wonderful Sacred Cow review of Lost in Translation was followed by a debate about what makes a movie worthy of the film spotting Pantheon. Josh rightly concluded Lost in Translation was worthy of the Pantheon. And well, Adam... You Let Me Down. At the very least, give Sofia Coppola's masterpiece a place in round two of Film Spotting Badness. It's the least Bob and Charlotte deserve. Listeners apparently felt that way. Lost a translation winning, also with 90% of the vote. Now, I'm sure some of that has to do with more people needing to see the Claire Denis film, Beau Travail. Sure. But I also know that there is that much affection out there for lost in translation and i did let adam down it maybe didn't seem quite pantheon worthy to me but it's certainly film
0: spotting madness worthy and i agree it's worthy of round two how far does it have to go in the tournament before you'll let it in the pantheon if it makes elite eight will you let it in you know what elite eight you got it all right it's a deal next up pta's there will be blood versus joe wright's atonement Here's Dylan, who's in North Hollywood. This was so cruel to Atonement. It has some of the most iconic imagery of any film ever, including what is arguably the most powerful Steadicam sequence ever seen. Oh, Dylan, I love you. Fantastic score, wonderful performances, and you pit it up against what is probably the best (laughs) film of the decade. Yeah, I have to vote Atonement, even though I have a slight preference for There Will Be Blood, just because I don't want to see it go down without a fight. (laughs) Thank you, Dylan. Well, (laughs) even I wasn't much of a fight. Didn't pick it. (laughs) Eighty-eight percent was. The winning amount for There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Another great film from
1: 2007 coming out on top of this one David Fincher's Zodiac versus Kelly Reichert's Wendy and Lucy. Keith Hook Up the Doll Mosier from Albertus, Pennsylvania writes I had to cram in a few movies over the past week, including Wendy and Lucy, just so I could vote in every matchup. And though I probably need to rewatch Zodiac, Wendy and Lucy packs such an emotional punch in its 80 minute running time. And Michelle Williams is amazing, as always, so I may be throwing my vote away. But Wendy and Lucy has my vote. And, yeah, you kind of did, Keith, unfortunately. (laughs) I'm glad Wendy and Lucy and Reichert got some love. But only 14% went their
0: way. Zodiac winning with 86%. How about Wong wise In the Mood for Love, versus the Darden brothers, L'Enfant, The Child? Josh Curtis here. I'd be happy if In the Mood for Love took this whole tournament. Yeah. It's got a shot, I would say, especially because it did win here with 86 percent of the vote. The Cone brothers, no country for old men, the
1: number one overall seed in the bracket going up against Duncan Jones, Moon, Aaron Teachman in D.C. I'm just glad Moon won its playing, But uh, yeah, so welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> no country winning with 85 percent. I got to say that's closer than I would have expected. Yeah, honestly. You know, it's not the widest margin, so a little bit of love certainly
0: out there for Duncan Jones' film. How about Christopher Nolan's Memento versus Michael Hanukkah's Caché? James Cobden said, Memento is an expertly crafted jigsaw puzzle that clicks into place perfectly at the film's climax. Caché is an equally well-crafted jigsaw puzzle, except the film's ending does not bring clarity and finality. Instead, we are left to try and piece together the messy consequences of imperialist legacies. While we can pack up Nolan's puzzle and put it back on the shelf, Hanukkahs lurks in our mind indefinitely. It offers a continual reminder that the prosperity and privilege enjoyed by modern Europeans cannot be separated from the violent colonialism that fueled our modern inequality. Wow. Well said by James. And I love
1: both films. It pained me to vote for Memento, Josh. Well, you were on the winning side. 82% Memento took it. Okay. Here comes Pixar. Maybe a triumphant Pixar. Andrew Stanton's Wall-E. Going up against Pedro Almodovar's, talk to her, and Wally does sweep up the competition. Josh, you see what I
0: did there? Yeah, that's great. That's gold.
1: Yeah, it is seventy nine percent to only twenty one percent for the Almodovar.
0: Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth is up next against Werner Herzog's. Grizzly Man. Gus Johnson said, oof, I wish I could keep one of the few documentaries in the madness. But Pan's Labyrinth is del Toro's best. Dark fantasy beats dark reality. Mm. And indeed, it did with 78% of the vote.
1: I wonder if it really is a listener named Gus Johnson or if that's a nod to the broadcaster who has called a fair number of March Madness games in the past. I would love to hear that read. In the voice of Gus Johnson. Maybe we'll get that at some I'd point. I'd do it if I knew his voice. Yeah. Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, one of the top seeds in the tournament, going up against Andrew Dominic's The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Jeff in Arizona says, one of the greatest Westerns of all time, accompanied by one of the greatest scores of all time by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, featuring the greatest Affleck performance of all time and the most underrated and understated Brad Pitt performance of all time versus the third best Nolan film in the tournament. The seating here is a mistake, and in a sane world, Jesse James would be the favorite to win it all. Okay, let's not get carried away, Jeff. But this is madness, and some people just want to watch the world burn.
0: (laughs) Joe Boyle here. This is actually an extremely interesting matchup. We have the most overrated movie of the decade, The Dark Knight. Versus possibly the most underrated.
1: Okay, Well, I mean, I could see how some people might think that. Dion says, a look at the comments would make you think that Jesse James is actually going to take this, but I know that's just wishful thinking on my part. I know it will be annihilated by The Dark Knight, even though, along with Unforgiven, it's the greatest Western since The Searchers.
0: Yes, there's definitely a very vocal and passionate and maybe a little over-the-top fan base for Jesse James, uh, but they're definitely... A vocal minority because Dark Knight won 77% of the vote. And maybe we will go ahead and throw this out, even
1: though I know Sam did acknowledge it in our recent newsletter. I threw out an idea to the group that in the coming weeks, we're going to have a hole in the schedule where there's maybe not a big new release worth diving into. And maybe that's a good opportunity to reflect on Andrew Dominic's The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. See if it lives up to the ridiculous hype that Jeff in Arizona (laughs) just threw out there. Yeah, I don't think you helped its cause there, but this is a movie I've said a million times. I know I need to revisit. I'm excited to revisit it and we might just pair it with a
0: Brad Pitt top five. So Josh, you didn't respond, but generally on board uh yeah i just i needed to look at the options i love the film when it first came out so I, I don't really think i'd be surprised by anything but because i loved it i mm-hmm. would be up for you watching seen it, it again. since then though i have not seen it. And that since. was a long time ago and you know i'm a big fan of brad pitt have been for a long time longer than you so we'll maybe do a brad pitt top five i'd be on board for that all right back to the tournament here with this matchup wes anderson's the royal tenenbaums versus spike lee's 25th hour Daniel Harris weighed in. I would like to applaud you guys putting 25th Hour in the tournament. It's Spike's most underrated film, a post-9-11 movie that captured the fact that most people hadn't figured out how to process it yet. It may not make it to the second round, but I'm excited that I have a reason to watch it this week. Yeah, it didn't make it to the second round, did it? Yeah, Royal Tenenbaums won with 77% of the vote, but I do love hearing that, and we've seen Mm -hmm. a lot of it on Twitter as well. Letterboxd, too, you'll notice... People are watching some of these two thousands films randomly. They'll pop up in my feed. Now, just wonder up oh, why is someone checking that up? Oh yeah, they'll, oh yeah, they'll mention partly the because of me, because of madness. <laughs> Hayao
1: Miyazaki's Spirited Away is up next against Noah Baumbach's The Squid and the Whale. Neil Mitchell says it's not even a contest. Master Miyazaki's glorious, mad, effortlessly otherworldly, wonderful imagination takes you to places nothing else can. And most listeners felt that way, 76% going to Spirited Away.
0: And this is one you had clued me in on a couple of days ago that I had predicted wrongly, yes. thinking that film spotting listeners went against my heart in this case. Yep. Would have preferred The Squid and the Whale, but no. And overwhelmingly, they yes. preferred. So I'm I'm proud of them for making the right choice. Sure, but it is but going also, to
1: make you finish last there again. There goes my
0: bracket. All right. The next matchup, Alfonso Cuarón's Children of Men versus Tomas Alfredson's Let the Right One In. Josh Ashenmiller said, like many other people here, I was cruising right along until I got to this one. I have to pull out a tiebreaker. Final scenes. But even in the final scenes, it's a photo finish. Oscar and Ellie's train to a doomed future is just as effective and affecting as the rowboat crash. So, overtime tiebreaker, next to last scene. I still cannot get that swimming pool sequence out of my head. I'm letting the right one advance to next round.
1: Josh makes a good case. I do love that Alfredson film, but not more than Children of Men.
0: Ah, That's some criteria I have not applied. Maybe at some point in the tournament, I'll get to that. (laughs) Uh, Children of Men still, despite Josh's vote, took it with 75% of the vote. Now we
1: have another Pixar film, The Incredibles. Directed by Brad Bird, of against Edward Yang's Yi Yi. Aaron Teachman in D.C. says, Yi is a movie I never would have found time for if it weren't for its inclusion on the Madness shortlist. There you Yay. go. It's time in the contest will be brief, but I treasure every minute of the three hours I spent watching it. Now, maybe we live in an alternate universe like
0: the one James Conan is suggesting we live in, and that's not the case with Yi Yi, Josh. James says, boy, it's a good thing people only vote when they've seen both movies. Or Yee, Yee probably wouldn't make it to the next round. Of course, since everyone voting has seen Yee Yee, it's going to make it to the final four. James, I'm yeah, afraid
1: not. Not so
0: much. Incredibles dominating
1: 75% to 25% of the votes. So long. Farewell
0: to Yee, Yee. How about Tarantino's Inglourious Bastards versus David Cronenberg's A History of Violence? Mike Eight shared this. Am I alone in being a bit bewildered on why History of Violence is here instead of the other great Vigo Cronenberg collab from the 2000s? Eastern Promises is one of the most underrated films of the 2000s. I suspect I'd still go with Inglorious Bastards either way. I'm just throwing it out there.
1: Yeah, can't can't go with you.
0: No, I think he's wrong.
1: Yeah, he's wrong. History of Violence was my favorite film of that year, Eastern Promises. I liked. Yeah.
0: Didn't make a top 10, though. No, sorry, Mike. Yeah doesn't really matter as he suggested though bastards won 72% of the vote i appreciate the passion though
1: mike Terrence malik's the new world up against jean-pierre Junet's amelie we heard from david hoffman and queens overly cutesy maybe but man if charm were weaponized it would be this film the editing and design are second to none and the underlying themes of loneliness and connection elevated far above the tweet exercise and style it might easily have been the best thing about that description david doesn't actually mention the title of the film, we know it's Amelie because he says overly cutesy, but otherwise, talking about loneliness and connection and the twee exercise in style, that could apply to Malik. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. It could almost apply to Malik, maybe not so much the New World as some of his other films, but this not is not a lot one. of
0: weaponized charm in the New World.
1: No, I suppose, maybe not, <laughs> though. Colin Farrell, I mean, You look up weaponized charm in the dictionary, I mean, there's a picture of Colin Farrell. Yeah, but it's not him in the New World. Maybe not. So this one is our first sorta upset. These were very closely seated. Amelie was just behind New World, and frankly, Sam and I both thought it would win. So an upset, but not really. And it really dominated 72% of the vote over the New
0: World. On moves Amelie. How about David Lynch's Mulholland Drive versus Donnie Darko? James in the UK said Donnie Darko has a special place in my heart, not least because it was one of the gateways that led me to discovering one of my favorite ever films. If you want a clue as to what that particular film is called, it rhymes with shmul and schmive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll have to think about that one for a little bit, James. Mulholland Drive or as James calls it, shmul and schmive, one with 71%. Of okay. Josh's beloved
1: Sam's beloved, the fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah. Up against. We were talking
0: some uh, Mr. Fox trash I today was, on Twitter. I was. He's trying to get us riled
1: up. <laughs> Going up against Christian Munju's four months, three weeks, and two days. Zach from Melbourne, Australia says, you know... Fantastic Mr. Fox is exactly the kind of movie I'd watch to ease the pain of watching four months, three weeks, and two days. (laughs) I've never actually had the courage to rewatch Christian Munju's film, but that is precisely because that pain, that discomfort, that unease has stuck with me. It's one of the most singularly powerful films of the decade. Meanwhile, no offense to Wes, but every film he's made is as delightful as Fantastic Mr. Fox. The unique nature of its gorgeous stop-motion animation doesn't change that for me. Four months, all day. Zach, you nailed it. Christian
0: Mongeau's film should have won. Didn't work out that way. That day is over. I'm sorry for you both. Mr. Fox wins with 71% of the vote. Next up, Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead versus Catherine Bigelow's The Hurt Locker. Here's Eric Hill from Fredericton, New Brunswick. Hurt Locker will probably rise in estimation as films about historical conflict usually tend to. But for now, all I can say is that I've watched Hurt Locker once and Shaun more than a dozen times. So I'll risk being on the wrong side of history to help save it. Well, you did help. Sean of the Dead won with 71% of the vote to Hurt Locker's
1: 29%. Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill, Volume 1, up against John Carney's sweet, innocent, doesn't deserve to, to get pummeled by Kill Bill. No, I mean, it never no. hurt anybody once. And Aaron Teachman says, we get to keep the once soundtrack, right? I mean, it's a theatrical musical. Now, you know what? I did think about that. Wow. That just because That's you're burning the question. movie for all eternity doesn't mean I can't still listen to Falling Slowly. So, you know what? I don't know. I voted Kill Bill. Sorry, you don't get
0: to make the rules. I think we need to, I need to <laughs> let Sam judge on this. Oh, the
1: soundtrack question. There's no way he wants to give up once. <laughs> and I think he probably voted Kill Bill because actually, famously, Sam was a bit of a curmudgeon about once when we discussed what? it on the show. Yeah. All right. Yeah, but he's admitted we, his folly later. We better just move on. Kill Bill
0: did move on with 66% of the vote to once is 34. Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love went up against Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York. Mike H. said, I absolutely love both of these films. Hard choice. Ultimately, for me, it comes down to this. In a world without Punch Drunk Love, I'd still be able to watch roughly 10,000 other films about quirky outsiders finding love. I don't think there's any other movie that deals with mortality Quite like Synecdoche. Actually, very similar reasoning for me. I like both films. I really like
1: both films, both kind of minor key love stories. But Synecdoche for me is just this unique otherworldly concoction. I voted for it, but I was in the minority, Josh. It's
0: been obliterated. Punch Drunk Love won 65% of the vote. OK, this one, Peter
1: Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring versus City of God, directed by Fernando Morelos and Katia Lund. And why don't we get a little bit of feedback here in voicemail form from our friend, Christopher Redman.
0: Hey, film sweating listeners, it's Christopher Redman here from DearcastingCrew.com, and I'm calling in a reluctant eulogy for City of God, which deserved a much better fate than losing in the first round. This is easily one of the best films of the decade, even of the century. It just explodes off the screen and completely redefines the parameters of an action film. It also owes as much to Battle of Algiers as it does The Best of Scorsese, but it easily belongs in those ranks. And it's still somehow underappreciated, even after being nominated for Best Director, Cinematographer, Editing, and Adapted Screenplay at the Oscars. And it's ranked number 21 on IMDb. That's higher than the original Star Wars, but not higher than Fellowship, unfortunately, because how do you compete against the full fruition of one of the most popular book series of all time? But in terms of cinema, tisk tisk, people. Give me the favelas over the Shire any day. The stakes actually matter, and the film actually stands on its own.
1: I love a good tisking, so thank you, Christopher, for that. Fellowship does advance. There's there's a lot more walking to do. They have so much more walking to do in Film Spotting Madness. They're going to move on 63% to 37
0: Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon went up against Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2. Here's James Conan again. Okay, this is the one that kills me. Spider-Man 2 is my favorite superhero film, and I thought I'd be able to vote it deep into film spotting madness. So, of course, its very first matchup is the stone-cold masterpiece of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, this is another one, Josh,
1: that is a sort of upset Crouching Tiger. Technically the slightly lower seed, but one Sam and I both predicted would advance, and it did. to 36 Now, what about Cameron Crowe? My beloved Almost Famous, going up against Adam McKay's Anchorman. Mike H. says, This was a surprisingly tough matchup. I glanced at it and thought, Well, of course, the frivolity and improv silliness of Anchorman is no match for the heart of Almost Famous. But those are the same elements that make Anchorman the defining comedy for a generation, and certainly a bellwether for the mainstreaming of absurdist comedy. Shocking even myself with this one, but I gotta give it. To Anchorman. Whoa. That is shocking. Anchorman shouldn't even be here. The 40 year old virgin should be. It lost in the play in, but it
0: didn't stand a chance up against Almost Famous. No, Almost Famous took it with 64% of the vote. Here are the Cohen brothers with a serious man, and they are taking on M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable. Andrew Shep says, I love Unbreakable. I really think it's one of the greats. However, A Serious Man is one of those films that stunned me after my first viewing. Then after prolonged meditation, my perplexity developed into appreciation and appreciation grew into awe, which after further viewing settled into the belief that it's one of the best Cohen movies ever. Definitely their best of the 2000s. Wow. Holy cow, Andrew. Well, Others, I don't know if they felt that strongly about it, but they did vote for it over Unbreakable because it won with 62 percent of the vote. Richard Linklater's Before Sunset went up against
1: Spike Jonze's adaptation. John Dembski wrote in, Before fans, please, you have Before Sunrise, leave adaptation (laughs) alone. And that's that's not true, John. We have a note here from Sam. He's ruled, I guess, that all copies of Sunrise were dumped into the incinerator when it lost its Sweet 16 matchup last year. Oh. So this is like the MCU. This is the madness yes. CU. And <laughs> exactly. And past votes do matter. For sure. Oh past yeah. Past brackets have determined that actually now we have lost two of the three films in the before trilogy. Uh-huh. We have to stop. We have to stop I don't
0: think the before Madness. midnight is going to make it out of its. Eventual I know, and it either. is going
1: to make the tournament next year the best of the 2010s. But I agree. I don't think it's going to be the only one of these films that moves on. For now, before sunset moves on, and who knows, maybe sunset will win the whole thing. Sixty percent of the vote against adaptations. Forty.
0: How about Scorsese's The Departed versus Quaran's Itu Mama Tambien. Mario says, growing up Latinx, E2 Mama Tambien was the coming-of-age film. No pun intended. So many insights into Mexican and Latin American society, family, sexuality, etc. I'll watch The Departed anytime it's on, but it's just one in Scorsese's bunch. Listeners didn't feel that way. 59%
1: to E2 Mama's 41. Christopher Nolan, he's back in the bracket with The Prestige, going up against another Edgar Wright film, Hot Fuzz. Rachel Wiseman says, this matchup makes me violently upset. Uh Hot Fuzz will always have a special place in my heart. It was my introduction to Edgar Wright, but the prestige caused me to lie down and think about it for hours after watching it. I tried flipping a coin, but then after fate told me to vote for the prestige, I thought, screw you, fate.
0: (laughs) that's why I voted for Fuzz. (laughs) I hope Rachel's okay. Well done. Here's Paige in DC. Hot Fuzz is visually inventive with whip-smart writing and an incredible joke every 10 to 20 seconds. Comedies like animation consistently get short shrift in these kinds of competitions. And if both this and Sean get knocked out for more very important films, I am over it. Well... Yeah, the more important film moved on. I'm afraid
1: the prestige won with 58% of the vote. Okay, closing out the bracket here with a few more. Ryan Johnson's debut film, Brick, up against Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream. This is one I had an incredibly tough time picking. I knew it would be a close one for our listeners, Josh and Brick, edging out Aronofsky,
0: 52% to 48%. That is tight. All right, here comes another Pixar entry, Ratatouille versus Martin McDonough's In Bruges. Mike H., Three Billboards was so god-awfully terribly written that it retroactively made me go back and question everything Martin McDonough ever made. Sure enough, on rewatch, I have to say both Six Shooter and Seven Psychopaths didn't hold up too well. But In Bruges is a different story. It just works. Hilarious, a bit dreamlike, and morally challenging. Ratatouille is good fun, but I think it may be the least deserving of the animated films in this tournament. Hmm. Wow. Yorn, Truyan
1: says, while I admit to bias because my family lives there, Bruges really is a fairy tale effing town. How about that? Someone from Bruges writes in defending in Bruges. And this one is a full on upset. We didn't know how it would go. Ratatouille is a movie that honestly could have been rated much higher in terms of its seating based on our expectations for it. But because of the other Pixar films that were here, it got moved down a little bit. It didn't help. It lost in Bruges only taking 49% of the vote.
0: This is just ridiculous, Sam. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever been more disappointed in film spotting listeners. Really? And and we should I also I voted say, in Bruges, so I don't I, care. Well, I'm sure you did. <laughs> I expected that. Didn't it? Didn't Sam even just revisit in Bruges as well? Yes. And, and come away Not a hugely fan. disappointed?
1: No, he didn't like it the what first are, time.
0: What are people thinking here? This is I a travesty.
1: I, 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 I've lost all faith I in don't this know. tournament. We may need to hear from some more listeners as it tries to advance. Now, I do have to say this about Bruges. I'm a fan of the film. I didn't think there was any scenario where I would pick it to advance in round one. I just don't love it that much. But Ratatouille, one of my least favorite Pixar films. So for oh. me, it drew an easy matchup, unfortunately. 80 votes. 80 votes is ultimately what separated that one. Come on, people. You're better than that. That brings us to Ang Lee's
0: Brokeback Mountain versus Pixar's Finding Nemo. Here's Kevin Ryan in Detroit. This is absolutely brutal. I love both of these movies for different reasons. I returned to the theater three times to see Brokeback Mountain when I was in college. However, my vote has to go to Finding Nemo. With Nemo, Pixar reached a new level of excellence in both storytelling and animation. The voice acting, the music, and the design are all exquisite. It's a true gem of the genre and deserves to move forward to
1: round two. Rachel Wiseman with some more gold here. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. Why? No, please. Don't make me choose. Why? I'm, I'm really starting to worry about Rachel. <laughs> Josh, this one got within one vote with an hour or so to go before polls close. That's how close it was. Almost 3,000 votes, and the final margin was nine votes. That's incredible. I knew this one would be impossible. It certainly was, but with 50.17% of the vote, Finding Nemo upsets Brokeback Mountain. And you could use the term upset loosely here because Brokeback, obviously, a great film that was a tough competitor here, but Nemo pulls it out
0: and i'm kind of relieved even though i voted the other way <laughs>
1: okay we have one more josh and just when you think it couldn't get closer than nine votes and yeah. 50.17 to 49.83 well we've got
0: another one for you it's park chanuk's old boy versus steven spielberg's minority report the founding father of film Spotty madness is weighing in on this one mike merrigan I've said forever that Minority Report is a film that wasn't given enough love in its time. I think the further away we get from it, the better it becomes. Well, listeners
1: mostly agreed with Mr. Merrigan. Final margin of votes, seven. But with 50.14%, Minority Report takes down old boy.
0: Never would have guessed it'd be that close. No, no, me neither. That is crazy. All right, all the dust has settled. It's currently settling. When we come back... We're gonna look at the round two matchups. Stay with us. The last
1: time I saw your face, yeah. You had aged so rapidly. A little piece of youth remained, yeah. And in youth, death does not hold proximity.
0: What you're saying and your comments are valuable, but I'm gonna ignore your advice. The cuss you are. The cuss am I? Are you cussing with me? No, you cussing with me. Don't cuss and point you're at me. You're gonna cuss with somebody. No, you're, you're not you, gonna cuss with me, you little cuss, cuss. With me.
1: The road to crowning a film spotting madness champ can sometimes get a little ugly. There will occasionally be cussing as long as it sticks to cussing, doesn't get worse. <laughs> exactly. That is from Wes Anderson's The Fantastic Mr. Fox. No reason for cussing yet, Josh. For you, one of your most beloved films of all time, did advance into round two. We are now going to share those matchups and make our choices. Unlike last week, where we did a little top five fun, the easiest, the hardest, and you had to think about them and kind of come in with a few thoughts preordained. You're going to go back to your usual method, which is not looking at these at all and just reacting in the moment. That's right. I have not seen these yet.
0: Okay. I'm getting getting nervous. Palms are a little sweaty. What terrible choices in the moment will I make? We'll start with the Cone Brothers. Okay. No Country for Old Men
1: is going up against Ryan Johnson's
0: brick. All right. Um yeah, it's no country. It's, yeah, it's, it is. Yeah, it's going to take a stronger contender than Brick, which was on my top ten list in the year it came out. Mine too. To knock off something like No Country, especially after having revisited both in recent years, um, No Country it is. Ryan, forgive us, please forgive We're sorry. us. he has to be pretty happy. He
1: took down Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, so that was strong. Strong competition already. A little bit of a Cinderella in this tournament, but it may not last for long. Our second matchup in round two: Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth up against Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume easy One. For yeah, that's easy, easy for you.
0: Yep, Pan's Labyrinth it is.
1: Okay, pretty easy for me. Kill Bill Volume One. Wes Anderson, another easy one for you. And well, I was gonna say a split, but I don't think it is. Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums up against Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous.
0: So Sam hopefully pulled some stats here, and I'm looking at this because I do, you know, this is Royal Tenenbaums for me all the way, but I was trying to remember how highly did I rank Almost Famous because I like it a lot. And indeed, it was number five in my top 10 list that year. Tenenbaums, number three when it came out. So I'm going to go Tenenbaums for sure. So.
1: I think I said this last week. I didn't have the list in front of me, but I couldn't believe that Tenenbaum's wasn't in my top five of 2001. This is a list, by the way, the top five of 2001 that we shared on Film Spotting in 2009 okay. as one of our year by year countdowns. At the time, these are the movies I rated ahead of the Royal Tenenbaum's. In 2001 or 2009? In 2009.
0: Looking back, I at rated 01. these films okay.
1: from 2001 as my five favorite of the year. Number five, In the Mood for Love. Okay. Amores Peros,
0: mm, the wow. only,
1: the only in 2 film I mm, like. Interesting. In the Bedroom, Todd Field's yep, debut. That's right. Memento. Okay. And Mulholland Drive. Yeah. That's not a bad list. No. It's really not a bad list. I still love all five of those films, but Royal Tenenbaums would find its way ahead of a couple of those choices. I would probably have it at number three. Are, are you voting against Almost Famous here? I can't wait to blow people's minds. Are you really? But I am.
0: This almost makes me as happy as when you put Isle of Dogs on your top ten well, list Well, just wait last till we year. get
1: to the fantastic Mr. Fox stuff. Oh, I can only ask so much. <laughs> I know people are going to be disappointed. I can't imagine not having Almost Famous, but I love the Royal Tenenbaums, and I think it needs to go on.
0: You're, you're growing in wisdom as, uh-huh. as you get older. Man. Yeah.
1: The next one, Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away. This one has to kill you, Josh, Ooh. doesn't it? Spirited oh, Away. Punch
0: Drunk Love. Going up against PTA's oh. Punch Drunk Love. See, this is completely arbitrary and pointless, but what did I rate Spirited Away? Let's which find I think out. We, which I think we noted last show. I don't think I saw it when it first came out. So I think I revisited it recently. Oh, arbitrary. This is where star ratings are helpful. Spirited Away, for whatever reason, three and a half out of four on my site. Okay, Punch Drunk Punch 4. Punch Drunk Love is four. I still contend possibly PTA's best film. Oh, so come on. I'm going to have to go with Punch Drunk Love.
1: Definitely going spirited away on this one. I can't believe I'm voting against PTA. I voted against Almost Famous and Paul Thomas Anderson.
0: Are you sure? That, now, we just saw a, a Marvel and movie where, and I where people Captain took, Marvel. On, took on different forms. I'm, they were shapeshifters. I'm a shapeshifter. Are you really Adam Kempinar? I, I may who, not Who be. are you? What intelligent, tasteful person is behind that mask? <laughs> the <laughs> next matchup is
1: another hard one, though. I mean, okay. Josh has had no problems killing poor oh Nemo gosh. once. How hard could oh it be gosh. a second time? Finding Nemo going up against Michelle Gondry's eternal sunshine of the spotless mind.
0: This is so hard. Adam, this isn't fair. The echoes.
1: Can I I vote against Finding Nemo and then have my memory (laughs) taken away so I don't
0: (laughs) recall doing it because it's too painful? That would be nice. That'd be a nice way of going about it. It, it, You know, the echoes of me flushing Nemo down the toilet last week have been reverberating in my mind all week long. Sunshine was your
1: number one film of all four.
0: It was your number one film. Apparently, there's a problem with the plumbing. He popped back up in the bowl, flushing him again. Get Nemo, just get down and stay down. Uh, Eternal sunshine it is. Yeah, that's where I'm going,
1: too. But let's move on. I can't think about <laughs> it anymore. Let's talk about it. Lost in Translation. This is an easy one for you, Josh. At least there's an easy one now versus Shaun of the Dead.
0: Yeah, I mean, I... Shaun of the Dead is one of my favorite Edgar Wright films. So it's not incredibly easy, uh, but I've already voted against it once in this tournament. So that Band-Aid has been ripped off against Lost in Translation. Not that big a deal. Yeah, Lost in I Translation think, it is. I think I prefer Shaun of the Dead, and that's my pick. Well, of course you do. You're trying to keep Lost in Translation out of the pantheon. <laughs> that's doing it. anything
1: you can. That's it. Okay, here's a tough one for me. Mulholland Drive
0: versus Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. Um... Crouching Tiger, I will vote. But again, the caveat being, haven't seen Mulholland Drive since I think it came out. Yeah. You really need to remedy that. But it's making this voting easy. I can guiltlessly vote against it. (laughs) Yes, as long as you're
1: okay with making the wrong choice, Mulholland Drive is the right choice here. Okay, finally we get to it. An easy one for me. The fantastic Mr. Fox going up against Richard Linklater's before Sunset. Before Sunset, my number one film of 2004, not to be found on Josh's top 10 of that year. Similarly, you have The Fantastic Mr. Fox as your number three of 09, not to be found on my top 10 of that year. So I know where you're going. It's Fox, of course. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how about you? I mean, what? See,
0: this the, now this is the Adam.
1: Yeah, I, I'm I going to vote against Linklater and Ethan Hawke and Julie Delphi and Nina Simone. No. I'm not. This is the Adam I know in question. (laughs) There will be blood Mm -hmm. up against the overly cutesy, but wonderfully whimsical Amelie. Yeah, I'm going to have to go blood here. Daniel Plainview would never, (laughs) would (laughs) never be able to abide Amelie. No, not at all. Blood it is. Yeah, that's my vote as well. In the mood for love up against Memento. So this is a 2001 bloodbath. Christopher Nolan up against Wong Kar Wai.
0: Easy one for me. In the mood for love. (sighs) Come on. Just do it. It's right. It's correct. You know it's correct. There's other Nolan. I think I do know it's
1: correct. I'm going in the mood for love. Nice. And here we've got Christopher Nolan. You're right. He's still in the tournament, but maybe not for long, Josh. Going up against Zodiac
0: is the Prestige. Yeah, and it's, see, for me, this is where I can, in good conscience, vote for Nolan. I love The Prestige. You love, love it. it. a lot, and I like Zodiac, but as I mentioned last show, not fanatical about it, like most people are. So you're yeah. going Zodiac, I'm assuming. Yeah, I'm definitely
1: going Zodiac, kind of fanatical about it. The Prestige is one that I did appreciate, very positive on, but need to watch again. Children of Men, Alfonso Cuaron going up against In
0: Bruges. This is an easy one. This is an easy well, one. Well, it should be. But all those maniacs out there who think in Bruges is maniacs. some sort of masterful achievement. Josh just went Charlton Heston on you. It's a fine film. It is a fine film. It has some
1: entertaining moments. Yeah, it should not advance over Children of Men. Not a chance. No, please I, don't don't do it. It please, I don't think it people. will. I don't think it will. How about The Dark Knight versus Why So Serious, Man?
0: The Cone Brothers wow you're on a roll tonight on a roll this is just fantastic stuff you're giving me uh dark Knight. i underrate serious man probably you do i know you most do. people love it as one of as we heard from a listener one of the Coens' best i just don't feel that way about it um and i think the dark Knight holds up especially after our sacred cow revisit last year
1: it definitely holds up this is a really tough one but yeah a serious man is one of my favorite Coen brothers films so I'm picking it. I have two Cohn Brothers movies advancing. We get back to another Pixar movie going up against Martin Scorsese's The Departed. Is
0: Wally, Josh, Wally an easy choice for you? Uh, no, not incredibly easy. I, Sam's notes, I'm seeing if they'll help me here. So Wally was my number six film of 2008. Didn't make your top 10 that year, Adam. The Departed you had at number two of 2006. Loved it. I hit it at number five. So they're about. Even. That's essentially saying they're even. So yeah. I, it's uh, Wally. Okay. <laughs> no logic. No logic, rationale. No criteria. Yeah, Wally. I do love Wally, but
1: I love The Departed more. Inglorious Bastards up against yeah, Minority it's easy. Report. The other
0: one. <laughs> really, it's it's that simple. Oh, yeah. It's Minority Report. Yeah. It's, even if yeah. it's in Bruges. Minor, well, oh my <laughs> gosh! Don't put me in that nightmare world. If that ends up happening, I may just have to quit. I don't think we
1: will get to that, Josh. You're going with Minority Report. Steven Spielberg. Please. Over Tarantino, of course. I'm going with Inglourious Basterds, my number one film of 2009. Our final matchup. This one I think will be tough for you, Josh. It's a good one to end on. The Fellowship of the Ring. Oh, interesting. Versus Brad Bird's. The Incredibles, intriguing. Pairing. The Incredibles just making it out of round one, Fellowship of the Ring, winning pretty decisively.
0: I'm going to vote against the Incredibles. I am. really, yeah. I've got, um, well, you know, I I've just lost my mind voting against Finding Nemo twice. So <laughs> yeah. more pick, the theme of my madness tournament this year is Pixar betrayal. Apparently, Apparently, this is what it's done to me. Why not continue, make myself miserable, vote against the Incredibles as well? I'm going to do it. Fellowship of the Ring. That's my vote.
1: I'm going to shock you by saying I don't know how I'm going to vote in this one.
0: Yeah, I don't. You're the the world's biggest LOTR fan now. After Apparently. our revisit, yeah. After our sacred cow consideration, you love them all. Do fantasy all the time. Adam. I love it. the I love the love hobbits.
1: I love the hobbits. Right. You're not got them.
0: <sighs> Do it. Come on. Stop goading me. You know you want to. It's going to make me. Don't pick worry about it. what people will think, Adam. They'll Just never embrace, have to know. Embrace your fantasy side, your fantasy nerd. Incredibles shall not pass, Adam. Incredibles, <laughs> I can't shall believe it, but not pass. I think I'm going fellowship. Thank you. All right, is this
1: over? Yeah. Well, <laughs> Can we stop for this week, now? For this week? Oh yeah. There's one next week. If things play out in round two how I want them to, there's <laughs> one in next week that will make me never want to do this again. I'm just telling you, if it happens is
0: it you're gonna Bastards hear the agony versus in Bruges?
1: No. no. <laughs> Inglorious Bastards is not part of it, but it's just absurd. Speaking of absurdity, we do have a punishment for the person who loses the film spotting madness bracket. We don't have a prize to the winner. You get some <laughs> bragging rights. We don't even remember who wins these things we do remember the loser. It's easy because it's always Josh. The loser always remembers. Yes. And the loser has to suffer through what has become the latest Adam Sandler movie on Netflix. And I say (laughs) that because I think it just began as like, you had to watch something that we picked for you, or listeners got to pick for you. Yeah. And it was a Netflix Adam Sandler movie, but then he always seemed to be releasing them around the time Just of Film Madness, making them basically for you. Yes. Josh. So now that is the punishment. Last year, you did watch The Week of with mm-hmm. Adam Sandler and Chris Rock. It took you almost a full year.
0: Well, that's, that's to make in the good. rules. Those are in the, you do have the bylaws.
1: The full year. I have a full year to get to it. Well, guess what? He's got another one. Yeah. Murder Mystery adam sandler and jennifer aniston no release date just set
0: yet but we do have a plot josh is that what you're going off of your enthusiasm is going off of the plot description a new york cop and his wife go on a european vacation to reinvigorate the spark in their marriage but end up getting framed and on the run for the death of an elderly billionaire i mean like i counted identity i counted 40 last strife 40 laps in that description alone adam (laughs) <laughs> I'm up you for it. You can't wait. But wait, where where am I? Let's not get let's, ahead of ourselves. Let's break what down the standings? the standings.
1: Okay, so the way we do this tournament is the four of us, meaning me, you, Sam, our producer, and founding father, Mike Merrigan, all fill out our bracket with our predictions. Yes. And we'll get those scores now. But before that, I do want to mention that Sam threw out the idea to our newsletter subscribers of having a listener bracket. And we gave them a window to send in their picks and we actually had 20 entries so they're participating i think maybe the winner gets a film spotting t-shirt so that's also kind of simultaneously going on and one listener josh had a huge week 31 out of 32 correct choices not bad the loser can come over to my house and we'll watch the sandler flick yes exactly so double punishment there is what you're saying hanging out with the larsons
0: yep and whoa whoa whoa, whoa. don't drag
1: the family into this yeah they're good people you might (laughs) not want to hang out with me and we will see whether or not it's going to be you josh
0: let's let's not belabor this let's just give me the rankings let me know where i stand
1: okay in last place it is very close and it's too early obviously to call it but in last place is mike merrigan he got 28 out of 32 correct he also got six points from the play-in so he's at 34 the good news for him is that none of those misses affect future rounds okay i'm just ahead of him 34.5 points I had 29 out of 32 in round one. Me and Sam both missed the same three films. So
0: what place does that put you in?
1: Well, I'm third. Oh, okay. Yeah,
0: I'm third. So I make sure I was doing the math right
1: on now that. Now, Josh, you, yeah. just ahead of me. Really? In second place. Well, how well, about that? you could say maybe tied for first, but we'll see how that shakes out. You also got 29 out of 32 right, plus your six from the play-in. Here's the problem, Josh. Yeah. You had both the squid and the whale. And Ratatouille, advancing to the Sweet 16.
0: That's the in travesty. Are you telling me that not only is that an embarrassing mark on film-spotting history that our listenership would make such an (laughs) egregious choice, but it is also likely to derail my bracket? It could. I'm doubly furious. (laughs) In the lead, then,
1: would be Sam. 29 out of 32 right. Also (sighs) with 35 points overall. But he's got all of his 16 still alive, as do myself and Mike. So Josh, it's not over for sure, but you're in a precarious position with those two misguided choices. That's where I like to be. (laughs) Voting for Film Spotting Madness is open now at filmspotting.net slash madness. Please vote. Invite your friends. It's fun, except when it's excruciating. Polls go live every Friday at midnight. They close the following Monday at noon. We do remind you that if you are a subscriber to the Film Spotting newsletter, you get your first shot at the voting. You can subscribe at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. And Josh, that is our show.
0: I am exasperated, disappointed in myself, and furious at listeners. This has been a great time. (laughs) It's a good night. If you haven't already, we do ask that you check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you want a Film Spotting t-shirt of your own or any other Film Spotting merch, go ahead and visit filmspotting.net slash shop. There has been a lot of madness chatter on social media so go ahead and follow us there on facebook and especially on twitter adam is at film spotting i'm at larson on film the hashtag to use there is just film spotting madness out in wide release this weekend captain marvel recommended
1: by both of us out in limited release here in Chicago Gaspar Noe's Climax, The Wedding Guest directed by Michael Winterbottom starring Dev Patel and Birds of Passage this one getting a lot of good buzz set in Columbia during the 70s marijuana boom. Next week on the show, we're going to talk about a film that some of our favorite critics are calling the best film of the year so far, Transit from Christian Petzold who did Phoenix back in 2014 and Barbara in 2012. Of course, We will have the second round results and Sweet 16 matchups for Film Spotting Madness and the third movie in our John Cassavetes marathon, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie.
0: Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is from Teen, comes from the album Good Fruit. More information is at teentheband.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.